Welcome back to Clinicians Brief, the podcast, the conversations behind the content. This week, we've got for you a new segment we are really excited to introduce called Ask the Expert. This new segment is basically our way of bringing you the questions you send to us, getting you the answers from the experts that we have, the wealth of knowledge that works with Brief Media right now, and we're able to reach out to these experts, get the answers to your questions, and bring it to you here on this podcast. This segment launch is important, and it's it's a raging topic in the veterinary industry right now, so we could not be any more excited to have today's experts on blue-green algae joining us. There have been multiple deaths across the country reported, and, and people have a lot of questions in this area. We are so lucky to have two amazing experts from from the toxicology department at Kansas State. Um, you may not realize that they actually have a diagnostic toxicology department. They were um, wonderful enough to loan to us today two brilliant people that are, are contributing to this. We've got one professor of toxicology and a very hardworking resident joining us today. Dr. Steve Ensley and Dr. Scott Fritz, thank you so much for being here. Dr. Ensley, I'll start with you. If you can just give us a little bit about your background and, and how you ended up being a blue-green algae expert, and then I'll, and I'll ask the same of you, Dr. Fritz. Sure. My, my father was a veterinarian. I grew up in northeast Kansas around veterinary medicine. I went to veterinary school at Kansas State, uh, graduated. I practiced for 15 years. I went to Iowa State, got a master's and a PhD in toxicology, and my, my master's and PhD uh, work were both about drinking water quality for animals, so I had, a, I had an interest through my practice career and in my graduate work. Worked at Iowa State University for 16 years. I came back to K-State about a year and a half ago, and we're doing ongoing, you know, work with blue-green algae here at Kansas State. And I, um, I guess I graduated from Iowa State's College of Veterinary Medicine in 2014. I've been in private practice in South Dakota for five years, and I just started a residency with Dr. Ensley here at Kansas State in July. And blue-green algae's kind of been the top thing on the list for my entire time here. So Dr. Fritz, take me back. Were you one of those guys that knew they wanted to be a veterinarian their whole life or did you come on later on in life? That's funny you ask. In roughly third grade, we did um, time capsules and they locked them up until we were seniors. You know, we were in school and they gave them back to us. And on my list was I wanted to win the master's golf champion. I wanted to be a bass master's champion, fisherman and a veterinarian. So I'm a terrible golfer and I don't have any time to fish, but one out of three is not bad when you're five years old. <laughs> one out of three when you're five is not bad at all. I love that. So you pretty much knew forever that this was a road you were going to go down. But then what kind of got you over into the internship you're in now? Uh, there was a, a lot of factors. I guess practice and life balance was one of them. And then I just found out Dr. Ensley had the opportunity and I'd worked with him and cases when I was in practice and it just there's a need for people to do what he does and we're just getting to the point where he had the opportunity I guess I wanted to take advantage of it and learn from the guy that that is kind of the nation's expert especially for food animals. And I mean, you'd be crazy not to take that opportunity, right? We felt the same way when we had the chance to speak with you, both of you. And Dr. Ensley, let me ask you this. When it comes to studying blue-green algae, what are you guys doing? What does it actually look like that you're you're going through out there and what information are you gathering? So a lot of there's a lot of questions just because of the information in the press about 
safety of animals exposed to blue-green algae? Is the water that we're worried about, is it really, is what we're seeing algae or is it something else? Is it, is it safe? When is it safe? What will it do to my animals if there is blue-green algae in the, in the body of water that they swim through or they use for drinking water? You know, a lot of questions about how does it affect my animal? What can I do to prevent that? And, you know, how do I find out if the water that my, my animal will be around is a problem? So to that point, when you guys are studying the algae, are you studying algae itself? Are you growing it? Are you working with animals? How does how do you learn more about this? So in a diagnostic setting, you know, a lot of times we're, we're asked to, uh, if an animal dies, to try to find out why it dies. And so if it's not an infectious disease cause, that's when we get involved in toxicology. And so we, we try to help make a determination whether, you know, the cause of the illness or cause of death was most likely due to, uh, in this case, you know, blue-green algae uh, exposure. So a lot of times that's, you know, that's our involvement is, is, you know, what do we look at? How do we diagnose that? You know, how do we prevent any more adverse health effects with exposure to this blue-green algae? Yeah, and, and you know, I have to say, I actually live right outside of Wilmington, North Carolina, and that was one of the first stories that really broke, I think, was of three dogs that were affected all at one time from a body of water down here in basically my hometown. So this hit home, obviously, no pun intended, really quickly right away. And so we were excited when we were able to get you guys to answer some of these questions. And again, we kind of crowdsource these. So we're just going to go through the questions that we've received from our audience listeners. I want to get a chance to thank them. In most of these questions that we have today, I just want to send a, a thank you out to um, the Facebook group, Veterinary Technician Management and Discussion Group, because those guys jumped in when I said, what would you want to know? And they had a lot of questions. So we'll get started with asking our experts. And the first thing that we wanted to know, and, and the, one of the most pressing questions that came from Anne was, is there any way to tell it's in a pond before letting your pet go in, or do you just have to avoid all of these bodies of water? Yeah, so generally it's... you can't really tell by looking at the body of water. If it's in there, a lot of times you can identify it, but just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. And it kind of depends on how these blooms, you know, they go through a cycle and when that bloom dissipates, you might not be able to see any of the algae themselves, but the toxins they release can still be present. So yeah, there's, there's really no good way to tell just by looking at the water. And I don't know that you necessarily have to avoid all bodies of water. Some of these answers may be repetitive throughout the day, but there's generally some sort of a state agency that monitors at least recreational bodies of water. And a lot of times if there is a, you know, if their analytical testing has come back that there's an exposure opportunity present there, then they will post warning signs or they'll be doing something to notify the public that that, that can be an issue. So, and, and that's a great point. And we did have that question. Is there uh, an accumulation of a database of affected lakes or, or bodies of water? And that question came from Heather. Is there somewhere we can send people to be pursuing um, kind of proactively looking for bodies of water they want to avoid? I don't know if there's a national database, but the um, EPA has a kind of an offshoot of their website. I don't, I can probably find a link for somebody, but it's there's a harmful algal bloom resource page on the EPA website and they'll have a map of the United States and you can click on your state. And depending on the state, some of them, they don't have any information posted here, but most of them do have a state agency webpage that usually has the bodies of water listed. And, you know, there's different levels of warning depending, you know, most states don't necessarily list the concentration of toxins they found, but they'll have, you know, they'll explain the different warning systems and 
So there's there's options out there, but the EPA website would be a good place to start. Oh, that's me. I see. I didn't realize that. I I did see some people posting state or local agency um, notifications. So it seems like on the local levels, like you said, there are some and there might be some posted around there. Uh, You know, one area that we, I guess, want to talk about, and and it's something kind of Beth alluded to, and as well as Michelle, were are there any safe lakes? Are they all infested? What are they looking for when they're encountering a body of water they feel like they want to go into? What are the first things you, you give as warning signs? Generally, the warning signs are going to be, you know, if, so dogs are considered a sentinel species for humans just because you share the same environment and generally the same exposure situation. But if you, you know, if you drive up in your car to a body of water and you see dead wildlife around the edge of the pond or dead fish floating in their pond or anything that's, you know, in the water itself that looks like paint on the surface, those are going to be pretty good indicators that you want to stay away from that body of water. But again, it's so variable you know, depending on the concentrations of the algae and concentration of the toxin and whether or not the algae are even producing toxins. But I would say any of those things would red flag it for me. You know, sometimes the surface blooms will have some strange odors too, but if you see paint in the water that's blue, green, orange, you know, it's not necessarily always blue or green. Any dead wildlife around the edge of the pond or again, any posted state warnings that are nearby, those are all going to be things that you want to pay attention to. And I guess, you know, for Michelle, part of her question really was that she has a small pond on her property that her dog likes to swim in. So, you know, she's not letting her get anywhere near it. And I guess part of the question is, are are these algae always present? Are they introduced? And is it just kind of the optimum situation that causes the blooms? I can't answer that one fully. I would assume, and again, it's an assumption that they're always present. I mean, they're they're going to be in pretty much every body of water, but like you said, it's got to be the perfect storm of of variables that hit at the same time and the same time of year. And, you know, generally they're present, but they're not going to be present in a high enough concentration to cause an issue. And what exactly causes that bloom? What is the perfect situation? Is it seasonal? Is it the humidity? Because I've heard a couple different things that are causing, you know, the causing contribution to these blooms. Yeah, the perfect storm is you're going to want a still body of water that's not moving or very slow moving or stagnant body of water. Um, Generally, they have some sort of nutrient concentration. It's generally nitrogen and phosphorus, and so those should ring a bell right away as fertilizer components. You know, that could be people watering their lawns and then, you know, those housing developments around a pond, all that runoff is going to run right into the thing. Septic tank drain fields can be a problem too because a lot of times they'll drain under the ground and end up in a water source or, you know, farming runoff also can cause some of that. It's got to be pretty warm out. I think water degrees above 70 degrees is is kind of optimum or higher. Um, and then generally following a rainfall event, you know, if you have a big washing rain that it further concentrates the nutrients into that body of water, that's kind of the ideal situation for these things to grow. So a stagnant body of water with a lot of nutrients that's not moving and it's generally later in the summer when it's pretty warm out and to that point i guess um lizzie asked about what temperature does this algae die in other words when do we know it's the water's cold enough to feel safe to let the dog swim again the answer to that one's going to scare a lot of people there's pictures out there of of toxin producing blue green algae underneath the ice (gasps) really yeah so generally i mean that's going to be the a very minor percentage of things but yeah it's generally 70 degrees or above in the water when you get below that generally it's safe but like i said there's so many variables that go into it that it's 
it's not really an easy question to nail down. Wow, that's really scary. And so I guess um, when when people are come across, so for example, like with Michelle, she has this pond on on her her property. Is there somewhere she could send water to be tested? What's the best way to rule it out if you if you have a body of water you're concerned about that you can test? So if there's a question, we'd like to have people send a water sample to us. You know, that's the best way I think we can evaluate it you know, the water sample and, and try to make determination or help them decide, you know, what level of risk there is. And so, and in most states, there's a, a regulatory agency. Sometimes they, the state regulatory agencies only deal with recreational water and they don't deal with, you know, individual owners if they wanted to, you know, wanted to look at their own, own water sources. So in Kansas, if you have a water source and it involves animals, then we'll accept the sample here through the diagnostic lab, and we, we will look at that. And we can look at it uh, microscopically to see what the population is in there. And uh, if there are cyanobacteria that are toxin producers present, then we also like to try to look at the toxin concentration. And, and then, you know, have just visit about what, you know, what else they're seeing, uh, you know, and where the pond's at or what's happened, you know, to try to come up with a plan to, to decide whether your animals can use it for recreation or just drinking water. And, and then how long, if there was a bloom and we do see toxin, how long do we have to wait before it's, you know, most likely going to be safe enough they could be used that again then. So, and, and I guess that kind of brings us to our next set of questions, because at this point, the, the majority of the questions we've gotten have been exposure after, you know, outside of identification and knowing when the when the water is safe again, which it sounds like we, we don't know when the water is safe again. Um, but, you know, I guess a lot of people are scared because dogs are, are dying. And, and one of the first things I want to ask is my understanding is that these dogs don't have to drink the water to be um, exposed to the toxin in such a way that can be fatal. My understanding is even just grooming post-exposure, they can ingest enough toxin. I kind of want to myth bust some things here. So can you guys weigh in on those types of things? What does exposure look like? How little or how much? What are we talking about when it comes to the facts? Okay. These, um, the toxins produced by these cyanobacteria are oftentimes extremely potent, and they're some of the more potent toxins than, that we know about. And, you know, generally there's an oral exposure. The dogs are running around and they end up drinking some of the water, but you're right that they can, you know, if they come out of there and that algal scum's on their legs or whatever in their fur and they go to groom themselves, that, that will be enough ingestion to generally will be enough to cause a problem. And again, that's all going to be directly related to the concentration of toxin being produced. But yeah, they're potent enough. It doesn't take much. And is, is, is this always deadly? So that's a confusing question, or at least a, a question that's going to have some multi-headed answers. There's a couple different types of toxins produced by these bacteria. Some of them are neurotoxins and some of them are liver toxins. And then there's some subsets within those. But generally, the neurotoxins is acute enough, and there's just not enough time, and there's a very steep dose-response curve to it, meaning there's a, a very tight threshold. So, you, you know, a certain amount, you might not see any issues, and then all of a sudden, it's going to be enough of an exposure to kill the dog pretty acutely. So that one, you know, it, it's tough. So on the neurotoxin one, if you see clinical signs, I mean, you're almost to the point where there's enough exposure that that's probably going to be fatal. Whereas the hepatotoxins, the dose response isn't quite as steep. So you get that exposure and see some clinical signs and 
I don't have some hard numbers on percentages, but there can be a positive outcome. Oh, well, it's I mean, it's good to know that there can at least be. Um, what are what are the client recommendations here? Is there anything that a client can do on site to help, you know, treat if they I, I know that you said basically if it's neuro and we're seeing signs, it, it sounds like it's a little bit too late. But, you know, what are we telling our clients to do to help treat the dog if they if they've run out, perhaps maybe gotten loose off the leash and they ran into a pond and were worried about it? They, and, and that one came from Heather. And I, I think she has a really good point of, uh, you know, what are the first signs we're looking for and and what can we do the quickest again these signs are going to be pretty acute so anytime you know if the dog comes out of the body of water generally you're going to see vomiting right away it would put a plug in there to if that happens to grab that vomit and you know submit that or take it to your veterinarian but that's a very important piece of the puzzle and then the next step would be to wash the dog off as quickly as possible and then your next step is to get to a veterinarian right away the sooner you that a veterinarian's involved, the sooner you're or the better chance you're going to have of a positive outcome. And it's generally going to be pretty scary, I think, for pet owners in the fact that it's acute enough that the dog comes out of the water and the timeline's going to be variable there. But you start seeing clinical signs, and by the time they're to their veterinarian, then you're, I mean, it's going to be pretty serious. But the main thing to remember would be if the dog vomits to keep that. And honestly, I would not have thought about advising my clients of that. And so I thank you so much for that. A very important point because you're absolutely right that there's a, a whole lot of information at that point, you know, that can help us to know what to do. And and then I guess for our veterinary community, what are you recommending for veterinarians that are calling you saying, I think I have an exposure? What are our first steps? You know, try to evaluate the animal and, you know, make a determination of is, is what we're seeing, you know, most likely associated with an acute exposure to blue-green algae because it is it is so rapid, but the clinical signs can vary widely. So it's, you know, we need to go through, you know, just like we would do any case, you know, trying to evaluate, see what see what the exposure was to the clinical signs. Do they look like what we would see if we saw a blue-green algae exposure? And in this case, you know, because it can be so rapid, you don't have a lot of time to do much diagnostics, you know, and so you're trying to, you know, go into treatment mode as soon as you can and, you know, and supportive care. There is no specific antidote for these these toxins, um, you know, supportive care and, and addressing the clinical signs that you see, you know, if you're seeing seizures or other problems associated with that, treat those appropriately. Uh, the, the quicker you can do some intervention, the more more likely you will have a positive outcome. So for, we, I understand, you know, it's hard to make specific recommendations. And I know that when we get in acute situations, it, it, time is against us. But with the idea that maybe there are a few uh, positive cases and that there is something we can do, when a dog is presenting and there is even slightly suspicion that this could be the case, what are you advising for clinicians? How do they, what are their first steps and what are they doing? So one, you know, one of the things in with toxicology cases in general is that we say we always, you know, treat the clinical signs that you see. Don't treat what you think it may be or what what your clients suggest may be the issue with the animal. So you know, the clinical signs are paramount. We want to look at those. Treat what we're seeing with the added history of maybe a possible exposure of blue green algae issues. So the decontamination of the animal is critical. So hopefully, you know, they did that before they got there. If not, you want to decontaminate them so they don't get any more oral exposure because the dermal exposure in, in animals is not really an issue like in humans. So we want to get any of the, the potential toxin, you know, off the animal so they can't lick or can't consume any more than they've already had and then treat the clinical signs that you see appropriately, knowing that we don't really have any antidotes. 
and you know a paddle protectants any of those any of those things you can do if you're convinced that it is a blue-green algae exposure and potential hepatotoxin, you know, those, those are, you know, maybe more targeted kind of therapies you can try to do. But again, it's it's an acute, you know, usually these are very acute, so you're, you're going to do everything you can to try to get over the immediate emergency situation that you're dealt with and try to stabilize the animals. Yeah, anything for, you know, for the veterinary community, that's a lot of it. And knowing the ways that they can be proactive, the the conversations they can have with clients to help them know how to avoid these areas, it's just incredibly important. Um, you brought up another good point, though, and I, I did just want to ask you, what is the concern about exposure on our end if we're encountering these animals? Is this something we need to worry about on the human side? And, and then what other animals are at risk for these blue-green algae blooms? We've been really speaking specifically about dogs, but who else do we need to worry about? So, you know, you brought up a good point. So the, you know, the humans that are, you know, with the animal can potentially be exposed to just by handling the animal. So you want to be careful and try to make sure you don't have any oral exposure and the dermal exposure that you get is going to be limited. Make sure you try to decontaminate yourself as well. So human exposures can be just as critical as our animal exposure. So you don't want to get into more of a problem than you already have by getting contamination yourself and not trying to address that. And then we primarily talked about, you know, companion animal exposures, but I also wanted to bring up the point that we see, you know, we see death loss and illness associated with the animals are out grazing on pastures where they drink from these bodies of water. And so horses, cattle, you know, any grazing animals, they're going to drink from that water will have the same kind of clinical issues that we see in our companion animals. I'm so glad you made that point because, you know, we, we worry about all of them and we do often concentrate on companion animals, but it's funny, I think, too, we forget to protect ourselves and then we sometimes forget about our other four-legged friends. And I guess being coastal, I do, I kind of want to clarify, this is freshwater only. Are we seeing this in brackish areas as well? I know we said it's pretty much standing water. So if we have dogs that are visiting rivers or, you know, I'm at the beach, are we worried about those types of places or are we really just stagnant areas like ponds and lakes? So the cyanobacteria are mostly freshwater. They can be brackish water. The red tides and the other the marine toxins are they're dinoflagellate, so they're a different type of organism, and they don't typically have the toxins that the that our freshwater species will have. So there's sometimes there's confusion between you know the red tides or the the things that occur in salt water versus what we see in freshwater. So uh, what we see in freshwater, especially you know this last several months, the cyanobacteria, the toxin producing ones, are the ones that are they're causing all the issues and another problem is that over time i'd say in the last 10 or 15 years as i've been looking at blue green algae the the problem seems to be getting worse you know more more intense blooms uh, more widespread affecting more you know more bodies of water and you know we don't really have a good explanation for that but other than other clinically you know it's uh, we just see a lot more cases than than i used to see 10 or 15 years ago Wow. And that, you know, it's terrifying, but I think it goes along with a lot of these weather related phenomena. And, and I know for us here at the beach, the, the ocean was, you know, 87 and 90 degrees all all summer this year. And it's, it just seems like there has to be some contribution to these water temperatures being as high as they are. Right. I, I would agree. You know, I mean, I think, you know, there is some climate change, you know, what's driving that? I don't know exactly, but I would say, you know, this increasing incidence we're seeing with blue green algae exposures, I think you know, is, is definitely related to the climate. And so as far as the small private bodies of water that people often have on, you know, if they live on an acreage or 
or other situation. There are some mitigation strategies that can be used. I guess the main caveat to that is if it's in the middle of a harmful algal bloom and you do anything to upset those algae or stress them out or kill them, there's a good chance that you're going to make the concentration of toxins even worse for a period of time. So the main thing would maybe be get in front of that or at least be aware if you have an active bloom and you go through and disrupt that bloom that you're going to want to avoid that body of water for a period of time. So traditionally copper sulfate has been used in water bodies to prevent and or kill these algae. The issue with that is then you have high copper concentrations in the water and that can pose a risk to livestock and pets alike. So we kind of lean away from that one. The same goes for algicides without having any studies on top, you know, no hard numbers. I don't know the risk and exposure that would cause to pets and or livestock if you put an algicide in the water. Some things that are kind of low risk, fountains or aeration strategies, anything you can do to upset the surface of that water. Fountain seems a little bit extreme, but it's, you're going to make that body of water then instead of a stagnant pond, it's going to, there'll be some movement to the surface of it. You know, like we talked about earlier, the algae needs sunlight, they're going to need heat and they want a still body of water. And so ambient temperature is going to be a little bit tough to control, but you can control the movement of that water and aeration would be probably the easiest strategy there. And then disrupting the light source for those algae. There are some pond dyes that you can use, generally blue and black in color, that'll kind of prevent those algae from getting the sunlight they need to have a successful bloom. And I don't have any price points on any of that, but (laughs) That's all right. Don't you worry. Uh, I think it's incredible to know because, again, we do have listeners who are concerned because they have bodies of water on their property and and pets who want to be in them. Knowing that you can be proactive and get and treat that water, get in front of it. It's incredibly important. Are there are there any points to add to that or because I think that prevention portion is incredibly important? Yeah, those are, uh, you know, we, we wish we had more intervention strategies or things we could do to prevent, you know, this from happening again, because it's even possible in the same summertime period, you know, that we could have multiple blooms on that body of water. So, you know, we have some limited things we can do intervention strategies, uh, but not, not nearly as good as we need to. So more work needs to be done along those lines. It's not about hiring a good coworker, it's about hiring the right one. Post your open position on the Clinician's Brief Career Center to quickly get noticed by the right talent. With our platform and frequent promotions, we can help you connect with prospective coworkers and effectively grow your team. Post your job today at cliniciansbrief.com backslash career dash center. That's outstanding. And I guess when we, you know, look at it front end versus back end, so we know we can be a little proactive where we can be if we have the ability to. But on the backside here, we, we've seen a lot of reaction in the industry. We've seen a lot of clients who are very concerned and a lot of veterinarians who probably feel a little bit lost. This isn't their area. So I just kind of want to ask, you know, two questions. One pillar here, question from Cherokee was, what are your recommendations for pet owners and, and what are you telling them? What are veterinarians talking points to help bring comfort and education to their clients? And then, you know, kind of that other wheelhouse is what are the talking points for veterinarians? What are the key things they need to know? I would say the key things with the entire situation would be veterinarians and owners alike. If you have companion animals that enjoy being around water and like to swim in water, I would probably lean towards a public body of water, recreational area that is being constantly monitored. Usually those are weekly monitoring 
you know, whatever analytical tests they're using, they do it on a weekly basis. Um, that's going to obviously depend on the state and the agency, but I would definitely make sure you're going to a, a recreational body that's being constantly monitored and you check um, check the status of that body of water on any of the websites that you can find. I'm sure you can just Google Blue Green Algae Wyoming and they'll give you a list of bodies of water that are current warning signs. And so that brings up another point to probably avoid some of those smaller private bodies of water, you know, that you don't know the status of. And then faster moving rivers are probably going to be safe for the most part. The problem is we're this time of the year when rainfall kind of tapers off, at least in this part of the country. And a lot of times the volumes of water going down those rivers are going to decrease and the speed at which that river travels is going to decrease. And you'll, you'll have some chances for some blooms in that situation. Okay, and veterinarians that have uh, seen exposures or they've come across exposures, what should they do? Do they report? I would urge them to report to somebody. I'm not going to have a list of each state's agency. I know in Kansas, the Department of Health and Environment um, would be a good place. There's a, I think they have an after-hours phone number, but the main thing would be to call the office and just get in touch with somebody. Just not necessarily, it's not a reportable disease condition, but it would help if they had a list of these exposures and can kind of define these cases just to help with research and checking out the numbers for years going forward. It might help with incident reports and and allow some people to do some risk assessments for these bodies of water moving forward. And do you gentlemen have any resources uh, that you recommend for more information, more reading? Where should people go if they have questions or need to reach out? You know, there is a lot of information out there. You just have to, you know, like with most things, you know, just don't take everything at face value. Make sure you do your own due diligence, you know, to make sure what they're, what you're reading about is accurate. And does your lab only take samples from Kansas, uh, the state of Kansas? Is that correct? No. No, we will. You know, we, we get samples from all over the U.S. So, you so know, if, if somebody wanted to submit a sample into Kansas State, what process would they follow? So we probably the best thing to do is get on the web and you can we have a submission form you can fill out if you want if you do want to submit a sample or there's a number you can call also to visit with somebody in the submission area so we get the appropriate sample get it packaged and get it sent if you work with a veterinarian most veterinarians are you know really good at doing the paperwork and getting the shipping correct to get a sample sent to us correctly so that's what we that's why I try to recommend if they have a veterinarian they work with you know work with them to get the sample here so we can look at it Uh On that point, too, I think sampling is very important. Like Dr. Ansley said, work with your veterinarian, but maybe urge them to call ahead because the location of samples and timing of sampling is important on the back end for diagnosing an exposure, at least, or at least, you know, getting a representative sample of the body of water. And that could be a whole half hour discussion. (laughs) Well, it sounds like we've got multiple podcasts to do on blue-green algae, and it sounds like a, you know, it's exactly why toxicology is incredibly fascinating. This, you know, it's tiny little organisms that have a really big impact. This is harming our clients. This is harming our patients, and it's a scary time for the veterinary industry. So again, you guys, thank you so much for being here and taking the time to answer these questions so thoroughly because we really want this information out there, and we want the quality information out there, and, and you guys are the ones for it. So I can't thank you enough. We really appreciate you being our very first experts on our Ask the Expert series and such an important topic. So Dr. Fritz and, and Dr. Ensley, I just I just really want to thank you guys so much for your time today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, no no problem. These are these are things interesting things that we're glad everybody else is interested in too, besides just us. 
That's exactly right. And if you have questions you'd like to ask the expert, we would love to hear from you on our Facebook or on our Instagram. And you can also find us at Clinician's Brief backslash podcast. Send us a note so that we know what it is, the questions we can answer for you. We look forward to hearing more from experts very soon. Thanks again to today's guests for joining us and thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. We appreciate if you leave us all the stars. You can listen to podcasts as well on our website at cliniciansbrief.com backslash podcasts. You can find us at facebook.com backslash cliniciansbrief, on Twitter at cliniciansbrief, and on Instagram at clinicians.brief. You can also drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief, the podcast is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ustry, sound by Randall Stupka, hosted by me, Becky Mosser, with special thanks to production assistant, Michelle Moncrez.